Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Listening to Bill Arnold's Encore presentation, Faith, Hope, and Clarity in a special repeat performance. Hey, warm welcome to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. That's me. Awfully glad you joined me today. We've got, uh, again, as always, an award winning hour coming up. Uh, David Wheaton, my friend and uh, radio co host from the ChristianWorldview.org, is my guest in just a couple of minutes. All right, so I'm in uh, Revelations right now, and I'm in chapter 3, verse 19. I, I memorized this when I was, I think, 19 or 20 years old. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. I like, the, I like saying that word every day, repent. And then in verse 20, it says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. Think of the position of Jesus standing at your door knocking. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. That just makes my heart leap with joy. All right, I'm going to take a little break and then bring David Wheaton on. He's already uh, waiting for us on the Skype line. So let's uh, take a short one and be back with David. never know the impact your choice to listen to Faith Radio will have on someone, whether it's giving someone a ride, inviting them into your home, or even playing Faith Radio at your business. You help the relevant Bible preaching and family-focused teaching of Faith Radio reach far and wide. We recently heard an encouraging story from a listener about connecting with a fellow Faith Radio listener. I was in a gift shop looking for a quick gift, and this lady that worked in there was just kind of filling in. She's on the highway five days a week. I said, oh, you have Faith Radio on your radio. She said, oh, I couldn't live without Faith Radio. It keeps me calm. Uh, The only way she could handle that road rage five days a week was uh, listening every morning and every night going home from work. So I thought you'd enjoy hearing her testimony. Share your story with us by calling the toll-free Faith Line. Leave us a message anytime at 877-93-FAITH. That's 877-933-2484. One, two, three, four. You're listening to Bill Arnold's Encore presentation, Faith, Hope, and Clarity in a special repeat performance. Devil ain't lazy. No siree. Devil ain't lazy. No siree. He roams around with sticks and stones, passing out his moans and groans. Devil ain't no lazy bones. He works 24 hours a day. Welcome back to the show. It's eight minutes after the hour. David Wheaton, as you know, is a regular guest. He's both an author and a radio host and a speaker. And as you, if you were a tennis fan, you know all about his uh, previous career in professional tennis. He's authored two books, University of Destruction, Your Game Plan for Spiritual Victory on Campus, and My Boy Ben, A Story of Love, Loss, and Grace. And uh, he's with me now. Hello, David. 
Good afternoon, Bill. It's good to be with you today. Thank you. Uh, let's. Uh, I, I wanted to talk about Revelations today, the, the seven churches in Revelation and, and how that communicates the gospel. Yeah, it seems like sort of an obscure topic, but it really shouldn't be. Um, Revelation is a unique book. It's the, the last book in the Bible, and it's the only book in the Bible that we know all of the whole Word of God is inspired by God, but this particular one is the message from Jesus Christ himself. So it's like he's the author of this particular book. It says right in the opening uh, sentences of the book, the revelation of Jesus Christ. We often shorten it just to saying revelation, the right. book of Revelation, but it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the title which God gave him, Jesus, to show to his bondservants the things much which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John, the apostle John. And so what an amazing book. If you think about it, sometimes we can get intimidated by revelation. There's prophecy, what's going to happen in the future. And there's lots of different interpretations about those things. But one thing is pretty clear about what Jesus' message to these seven actual historical churches is in in the first three chapters of Revelation. And these were seven churches in what is known as Asia Minor, or modern, which is modern-day Turkey. And that's sad enough in itself to think about the fact that these historic churches were in what is now a completely, basically non-Christian, fully Muslim country today. Uh, so thinks how much has changed in the last 2,000 years in, in, the, in the country of Turkey. So these seven churches are Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. These were towns or cities which within Asia Minor. And Jesus has a specific message, almost like a performance review uh, for each of them to tell them what they're doing well and what they need to change or else. And why this is so applicable for today is that these seven churches are really representative of all the things the church has faced in the last 2,000 years. You know, they, they often, you often heard it said, there's nothing new under the sun. Well, it's the same thing within the church. We face many or exactly the same temptations to stray or to get off course or into the commands to stay on course that these churches were receiving in their messages from Jesus 2,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. So, David— the question that is now prompted, if this, these revelations, uh, these letters to the churches uh, many years ago, uh, what warnings did Jesus tell them that would apply to churches today? Yeah, well, interestingly enough, there are seven churches. Two of them, Smyrna and Philadelphia, the churches in those towns, received commendations only. So they received compliments that they were doing well. Smyrna was a church, and you could go into much more of the background and what the culture of these cities were, but we won't have time for that today. But Smyrna, the town of Smyrna, the church there, was a persecuted church. Uh, the, the Jews, the non-believing Jews, and they were trying to rid this church of, of the, the Christians, rid the Roman Empire of Christians. And so they were constantly being persecuted, and they were receiving commendations from Christ for being faithful in the midst of, I mean, real persecution, not the kind today where you feel like you're kind of on the outs if you're a Christian in America. I mean, it was life or death to them. That's the kind of persecution they were facing. And then Philadelphia, you know, we think of it as the city of brotherly love. Mm -hmm. um, this church was a faithful church that the main thing they were commended for was that they kept God's word. And I mean, what a great thing to be said about your church is you pay attention to and keep God's word. But the other five, 
Ephesus, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, and Laodicea, they all, except for Laodicea, received a couple commendations like, here's what you're doing well, but then there was a strong warning to these churches, whether they were tolerating false teachers and, and false teaching, uh, whether they were being immersed in sexual immorality, whether they were tolerating worldliness uh, in, their, in their churches, uh, whether they had a sort of a dead spiritual life, they were just kind of going through the motions. All those churches were doing some or all of those things. And Christ's warning for all of these churches was exactly the same. It was something you said right at the beginning of the, this hour. You said it's about repentance. Repent. Mm. And, re, and repentance mm-hmm. is a term, a concept that we don't understand as well today. We, we think of it as, we just got to confess your sins and God will forgive you. Repentance is beyond that. Confession is agreeing with God about your sin. That's part of repentance. But repentance has the the idea of not only confessing and agreeing with God, acknowledging that we're offending him, but it's actually asking God for help in turning away from it to a whole new path. And so that was Christ's messages to these churches where there were warnings. You need to repent and you need to return to following uh, God wholly and fully. David, well said. Uh, why aren't churches today looking to the messages that Christ gave to these seven churches? Why are we missing this? Well, well frankly, as I was thinking about this topic, Bill, this is really the shock of all shocks. <laughs> because here, here you have Jesus' mess, personal message to seven churches that are representatives of all churches of all times. I mean, we face the same things that these churches uh, did back 2,000 years ago. You would think that churches today would say, well— <laughs> What did Jesus want these churches to do, and what did he want them not to do? What did he expect of them? And you think that churches all around this country be saying, okay, let's look into these into these messages to the churches. Let's look at what Paul wrote to Timothy and Titus, who were who were the heads of churches and starting churches and planting churches. What did they do? And this is the shock of all shocks, that this isn't like the first page of the manual for a church today, that what did they do? in this early church in these seven churches? What were they complimented for and what, what should we stay away from? Mm-hmm. But the fact is, Bill, I think too much of the too much of the time today, churches are focused on everything else but looking to what Jesus said about what the church should be. They're focused so much on attraction. How do we attract people to our churches? What How can we change the methodology of how we do church? How can we alter the messages, make them shorter, not so not so much about sin, righteousness, and judgment, but how do we make people feel good and want to be here? How do we tweak the music or the environment in the church to make more people want to come? And when you prioritize and focus so much on that, you lose the important thing. You don't prioritize the important things that Christ talked about these seven churches in Revelation. Yeah, right. I'm I'm a repent guy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Repent. That's what it, yeah, you that, have to do. Repentance is not just for when you first be decided to repent and believe the gospel. In other words, put your faith in Christ. Repentance should be a pattern of the Christian life. As we're progressively conformed to the image of Christ, we still do sin, and we need to repent from that and return and turn to the way Christ wants us to go. Yeah. Uh, great, David. Let me take a little break. David Wheaton is my guest. It's 16 minutes after the hour, and when we come back, I'm going to ask David about why— it your personal faith story is so powerful and maybe how important it is to have it tuned up, ready to go.
You're listening to Bill Arnold's Encore presentation. Welcome back to the show. It's 18 minutes after the hour, and David Wheaton is my guest. I always love talking to David uh, because he's a friend. Uh, he's also an author and uh, speaker, radio host. TheChristianWorldview.org is where you go to uh, see and hear anything David Wheaton related. So, David, uh, you know, let's talk about the, the the power of a personal faith story. Yeah, you know, your your faith story is basically consists of three parts. You know, what you were before you trusted in Christ, what your life was like, how your conversion to Christ took place, how you were regenerated, to use a doctrinal word, how you were born again, and what your life is like now. It's kind of the before and then before and after picture, I guess, of your life, like in Ephesians 2, chapter uh, verses one, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, there's that great before and after story. And if, I'm sure you've noticed this, Bill, but you look at someone like the Apostle Paul, let's just say just in the book of Acts, he retold his faith story, how he was converted over and over and over. I could say it six times because he's used it six times. And so it really provides an example of something that I think is underused by, by Christians. You know, sometimes we try to teach the gospel or tell the gospel to someone, and there's nothing certainly wrong with that. It's a good thing. But when it's your own story, there's something very personal and very powerful to your own story, telling your own story. It changed your life. No one can dispute your own story. Now, they may disagree with you, and they may think it's hogwash or whatever else, but it's your story, and you're sticking with it. So <laughs> your personal faith story is so powerful for those reasons. It's a personal story of something that ultimately changed, the most significant change that took place in your life. So I think we should try to be able to think about and articulate our faith story, how we were saved, so we can use it as an evangelism tool uh, and get into conversations. And as you mentioned, with Thanksgiving coming up, Christmas coming up, this is the time of year there are office parties, we get together with family and friends. And just in the course of conversation, it's just a powerful way of sowing seeds for the gospel by telling someone else, doesn't need to be a long sermon to someone, uh, just a short faith story, how Jesus Christ changed your life. Mm -hmm. And David, you know that there's few things more powerful than a life being well lived. So if your life is a complete mess, you know, <laughs> um, it's it's important to just be as vulnerable as you can and and share where you're at in your faith because you can't fool family or friends sometimes, right? No, absolutely right. And actually sharing the gospel or sharing your faith story with family is, or really close friends is the hardest to share it with because of the fact that they know you best. You know, they, they've seen your weaknesses. They've seen your sin in your mm -hmm. life. Uh, they've seen the hypocrisy in your life. But as you mentioned, Bill, you know, being vulnerable and being humble and saying, yeah, you know what, you're right. When someone, you know, puts you down uh, or criticizes you for sin in your life in the past, you should be like, yeah, you're right. I was so wrong. I was violating God's will uh, for my life. And I, I repented of that. And God is helping me overcome that. And I'm so thankful that he led me to repentance and faith in his son. And he's conforming me to him every day. In other words, use the criticism to turn it around <laughs> to say, you're right. Absolutely. And uh, he's got me on a whole new course now. And I'm not perfect today, but I'm on the narrow road that leads to life. Praise be to God. Yeah. Let's have a little refresher course, David, about the, you know, the main elements of the gospel that we really you know, must communicate when we're sharing our faith. 
so what uh, what are the main components that we we should always keep in the front of our mind? Yeah, I think sometimes we can get intimidated. Like, how am I going to remember all those verses? Or what right. am I going to say the wrong thing? You know, you never really say the wrong thing if you're just transparent, and honest with people about what Jesus Christ did in your life. I mean, that, that that's take the pressure off yourself and just testify to what Jesus Christ has done in your life. But that being said, I, I think it is important. I like to think of it in, in four, four categories. If you can think about God, you or man, Christ and response, there's sort of a progression there. And it starts out with who God is. Say something about who God is, because ultimately he is, he is the source of why we must come to saving faith. He, he is the one who defined what sin and righteousness are. He's the creator and sustainer of the universe. He's holy and good. He's the ultimate authority in life. He's the just judge of this universe that we're created to, to know and worship him. That's the purpose of our life. So when you say something about talking about the character and nature of God, that God created me personally to be a worshiper of him. We're all worshipers. We all have that hole in our heart. We're going to worship something in life. We're either going to worship ourselves or materialism or or sex or money or things, whatever. But when we worship those things, that can't fill that empty void in our life. We're created to worship God. So when you say something about God, I think that gives the context for what you're going to say next, which is point two about who we are and that the Bible says, and we are just by by the evidence of our lives, we're sinful and separated from God. And I think it's important, Bill, sometimes to get people unsaved before you can get them saved. They need to, we need to, the, the key thing we're being saved from is we're being saved from God's judgment over our sin against him. That's ultimately why we say we need to be saved or rescued. Salvation has the idea of rescue is because we've sinned and broken God's laws and God is a just God. And he says the wages of sin is death. And I think there are two things when you get to this aspect of who we are as people, we're sinners, that people will push back against. They'll push back against the idea that, well, gee, really, God is a is a just God by by sending people to hell for sinning against him. That that seems like disproportionate punishment. So that's one thing I think has to be overcome in some people's minds. And the other thing you have to overcome in people's minds is the fact that, well, okay, I'm a sinner, but I can just do good things. If my good outweighs my bad, then I can be made, I, I can be right before God. He wouldn't punish me because I've done a lot of good things. I've been charitable. I've done good deeds. I've been baptized. I've gone to church, that kind of thing. So those are two impediments that some people will push back against, mm-hmm. but there are answers, but there are answers to those things. Uh, it's, it's, it's unfortunate that we determine what we think is going to work in, in, uh, <laughs> yeah. in God's economy. We somehow don't take him on his terms. We decide, the kind of God that is going to make us comfortable. And then we say, well, I've shoveled my neighbor's walk. I gave to the United Way and I, I helped coach a, you know, a, a football team in, in junior high. So let's look at the big picture. If there's a good God in a good place, I've done enough good. I should go there. Yeah. It's sort of like uh, getting pulled over for being 15 miles over the speed limit by the police officer and saying, you know, I know I was speeding and breaking the law, but you know, I just came from um, feeding the poor and uh, cl- clothing the homeless, <laughs> yeah. and the and, and the officer is going to say to you, "That is that's wonderful," but here's your ticket for breaking the law. So it, it really is uh, even in, even in our fallen human world, that kind of justice does not work. I mm-hmm. mean, if if you have lived a perfect life and you commit one 
terrible sin of, you know, let's say em embezzling money or uh, cheating on your tax returns, let's say, you know, the government's going to say, I'm so glad you're a good citizen, but now here's where, here's where, here's your uh, prison cell right. uh, for the next 10 years of your life. So with God, who's perfectly holy and perfectly just, he's, he's much more just than any human judge. And I think when people understand that the penalty of lawbreaking increases according to the greater the one we offend. In other words, if I lie to my five-year-old son, the consequences really aren't that great. Okay, if I lie to my, my wife, though, the consequences become greater. If I lie to government, like I was just saying, of even greater authority than, than my wife, now I'm really in trouble. Now, just magnify that times <laughs> a billion, yeah. and now I'm lying, I'm telling a lie, and I'm offending the just judge, the God of this universe, the one who created me, how great is the penalty? That's why the wages of sin is death, and we deserve death. For the first time, we shake our fists at God and say, you know what? You may say one thing, but I'm going to do it another way. That's really cosmic treason against God. Yeah. David, just one minute left. Uh, when we're sharing our testimony with someone sharing the gospel, is it important uh, how they hear it or receive it, or should we just tell them? Well, Because, you know, we're like nervous about, ooh, they may not receive this well. We shouldn't okay. worry about that. In 60 seconds, let me spend the first 20 saying the good news, which we didn't get to, from who God is to who I was. But then you have to tell who Christ is and what he did, that he's God's sinless son. There's the issue of substitution. That is the heart of the gospel, that God sent his son to live a perfect life so he could be the perfect substitutionary sacrifice for our sin on the cross. And that satisfied God's justice and wrath over our sin that we must repent and believe in that, believe the gospel. That's the gospel. Mm -hmm. Now, is it is it important uh, whether someone's tracking with us or should we keep on going if we can tell they're disinterested and, and getting upset about it? You know, you shouldn't continue. You shouldn't mm -hmm. try to force it. You can't twist anyone's arm into the kingdom of heaven. So let's be sensitive to people. Let's watch their eyes. Let's watch their response and keep on giving more truth as long as it's being well-received. Yeah, my love and blessings to your family. And thanks so much for being on the show. And to you as well, Bill. Thank thanks you. So yep. uh, David Wheaton has been my guest. TheChristianWorldview.org is a place to go visit him. We'll be back in just a minute. to the show, I'm absolutely delighted to be uh, talking to Pastor Bob Merritt. He's the senior pastor of Eagleburg Church of the Twin Cities. And if you know anything about the Twin Cities, you know that is a big church. And not only is it big in Minnesota, it's one of the 10 largest churches in America. He's the author of Get Wise and Seven Simple Choices, uh, but he's also got a new book out called Done With That, Escape the Struggle of Your Old Life. And I love this concept that uh, you can come to a new life in Christ, yet your new life still feels 
little bit like your old life. So that that's no fun. And uh, we're going to learn more about that. Bob, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Bill. So it's really an honor to be with you guys and, and your listeners today. So yeah, awesome. I'm completely intrigued with this uh, book and this idea that so many people feel this way, Bob. You, you get become a, a new creation in Christ, yet there's big chunks of your life that still feel like your old life. Yeah, I mean, and that's why I wrote it. Uh, it's really about my own struggle. Um, I grew up in a pastor's home, so I was around church and Christianity and the Bible all my life. Eventually became a pastor, but you know, all through my teen years, twenties, thirties, uh, I would hear this message that when you become a Christian, the old life is gone, the new has come, everything changes. Well, then what's wrong with me? I would think, and just a lot of guilt and confusion uh, all all through growing up, and then here, even a pastor here at this church. You know, we ten years into Eagle Brook, I. You know, we were growing like crazy, and uh, life kind of overtook me. And uh, I talk in this book about my own signature sin, Bill, and it's verbal misconduct. The very thing that God uses greatly in my life is also something that I struggle with in saying hurtful things to people, um, saying inappropriate things. And so that that's kind of my signature sin, and that, that began to bubble up about 10 years in. And we, I was running so fast and just causing all kinds of havoc on staff, but I wasn't seeing it. And so the church board and their wisdom stepped in and said, you need a year to look at this. So I went through a year-long counseling session and 225 pages of feedback, what's good about Bob, what's bad about Bob. And I was confronted with this issue, this sinful pattern in my life. And here I am, a quote-unquote successful pastor of a large church, why am I still struggling with this this problem? And so it really grows out of that, my own struggle with what does it mean that the old life is gone? Well, the old life is still there in many ways for me. Mm-hmm. Bob, what was triggering uh, from the old life that was being manifest in the new life? You know, when you talk about verbal, did you say abuse? Was that the word you used? Verbal, verbal abuse? misconduct verbal is misconduct. how I say it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Was there something from your past? Were you uh, feeling that you were going on the offensive because of criticism that you'd receive? Or what would be prompting this um, this response? Yeah, it's hard to say. I, you know, one of the things I talk about in, our, in this book uh, is that oftentimes your greatest strength, there's a corresponding, corresponding weakness. Sometimes it's a sin issue. Sometimes it's a weakness. So, again, what God used, used greatly in my life, speaking, teaching— uh, if you misuse that verbal skill, the damage that can cause is immense. And so uh, oftentimes, if, if you're wondering about, well, what sin do I struggle with? Look, look for one of your strengths. And oftentimes there's a, there's a hidden weakness that maybe you haven't confronted. But with me, I was just under a tremendous amount of stress. And my, I was going so fast, uh, trying to lead, trying to teach, uh, began to get, get asked to do other things outside of my role here. And I just, my life was unmanageable. And when you're under stress, Bill, the ugly, the ugly parts of your life tend to bubble up more, more uh, frequently. And that's what happened with me. I love your candidness and honesty, Bob, because, uh, you know, obviously you were feeling pressure and um, there were a lot of demands and if I got a 225-page uh, book of what's wrong with me, I wouldn't read it. 
Well, it was, it was awful. I mean, it, it was awful and, and wonderful both at the same time. It was really the first time I'd ever been confronted with, you know, the darkness, the dark pieces in my life. Never gone through professional counseling, never had that kind of, uh, you know, digging around in my life. And I was forced into it. And what, you know, what, what forced, part of what forced me into that was uh, just the pain that I was causing other people. And now, now there's pain in my life as well. Uh, the stress, uh, this confrontation, uh, I was actually the board said, you either, you either get this taken care of or you're no longer going to be the pastor of this church. It was that, it was that severe. We call that the direct approach. <laughs> right. It's either you get this taken care right. of or you're done. Right. And so all kinds of, so pain is often, my point is pain is often a signal that something's wrong. Yeah. And that's what happened with me. I'm wondering, Bob, were you feeling resentment towards people that you were around every day, thinking that they were having these feelings oh. towards you? Oh, sure. I okay. mean, it's everybody else's problem but mine. You know, staff, you, you get to work, do your job, quit coming to me with your issues. I mean, just, and then if they complain about my behavior, you know, well, that's your problem. And so again, when you're, when you're, when you're not aware and to become self-aware of your sin is so, so important to be honest with it, to be humble enough to look at it. Mm-hmm. I was just, I was just not aware, uh, just terrible, you know, unawareness of my sin. So, yeah, I would I'd project. I would say, well, they're the they're the problem. Everybody else is the problem. You know, you're criticizing me, but you're you're really the issue. You're you're the jerk here in the situation, not me. <laughs> yeah. Now, in chapter five, when you were talking about your signature sins, I, I love the fact that you quote Proverbs eighteen twenty one that say the power, uh, the tongue has the power of life and death, and we all know that to be true. Um, so, what were you learning in this year of thinking about it that had you change how you acted? Well, um, it was interesting because 10 years after that, I went through another round with the same counselor, Fred. And, and what I learned was uh, verbal misconduct was, was kind of the exterior issue to deeper issues. And so I was able to kind of, once I recognized that verbal misconduct's a problem, saying hurtful things, harsh things, was a problem. I was able to at least, oh, I did it again. I could recognize that. I could apologize and and, and try to at least uh, do whatever I could not to do that. But then it began to manifest itself again a few years later, and the board said, hey, are you willing to go another round with this counselor, Fred? And I thought, I said, well, okay. And then, But inside I thought, you got to be kidding me. I thought I was done with that. And the, the, the truth is, Bill, you're never really done with sin. Mm-hmm. We, we, still, we still struggle. And so what I began to discover was be, what was behind this verbal problem, what was be, behind this uh, harshness inside of me. And we began to dig at my upbringing, and my dad was really a black and white kind of a guy. He was a good guy, but not a lot of love. He was hard on himself, and therefore he was hard on others. Well, guess what? I'm hard on myself, and then I tend to be hard on others. I'm not very compassionate, very forgiving, and I really had to go back. And you know, Bible talks about that we're forgiven in Christ. I, I really had to learn how to forgive myself because if I don't forgive myself, 
I have a hard time extending forgiveness to other people. Mm-hmm. And if I don't forgive other people, I'm just I'm just kind of harsh, I'm not compassionate. So we just began to dig at my upbringing and, and other things. That's if, when you ask what did I learn. Oftentimes the surface stuff, there's deeper stuff below it, um, and that that takes some digging. I'm wondering what it was like uh, when you would come home and try to process some of this with your wife. Was she uh, nodding in agreement with some of this? Was she saying, <laughs> <laughs> was she saying, okay, they have a point, or you know, what kind of? How were you processing processing this at home? Or maybe that's too personal. No, I didn't, no, that's fair. I. Uh, the first round, 10 years in, when I had this 225 page pages of feedback, I mean, she was giving part of the feedback <laughs> and my yeah. kids too. And my kids, I remember my son, 15 years old, when they interviewed him, Fred's team interviewed everybody, all my friends, my family members say, hey, what's good about your dad? What's bad about your dad? And I'll never forget this statement that I read was read back to me over a two day lockdown. My dad's always angry. It's from my 15 year old son. Hmm. And I'll never forget that moment. It broke me. It just it, it broke my spirit that this is something that my son is. And I, I wasn't even seeing it until it was read back to me from my own son. And my wife had a few things to say as well. So they were all in. I mean, they weren't beating up on me. They were, they were for me. But they were the recipients. My family, your family is often the recipients of your harshest uh, realities. And so... I just, I regret that, but I'm also very thankful that I was able to turn that around. And this day, I mean, I think we have a, a tremendous, there's a tremendous amount of love in our family. Mm-hmm. Did your 15-year-old son get a, a 50% reduction in allowance the following week? <laughs> well, first of all, we don't believe in allowances. <laughs> I'm sorry. Our kids, our kids learn how to work at an early age, and I think it, it did them, it served them well. Yeah. All right, uh, Bob, this is uh, so fascinating that, it, A, you're going to be so uh, honest about all this because this points to, to the fact that there are so many listening right now that go, oh, boy, this is a pastor talking, and I'm, I'm pretty much in that same vehicle. What do I do? Yeah, well. I mean, be, uh, besides it, buying the book. Yeah, well, that, that's a, that'd be a good start. But, again, um, you know, for me, it, it, there's there's a couple things I'd say. It starts with being humble enough to say, okay, I'm human. That means I sin. The Bible says we all sin. So will I be humble enough, courageous enough to uh, look at that? And honesty, will I be honest with, with the real the facts? So sometimes you need help. You know, you need a professional, you need some, a, a good friend to help you. You know, a good question you could ask a friend that you're a trusted friend. Hey, if, if I could change, if, if you would want me to change something about me, what would it be? I mean, what a, what a bold question to ask your friend or your spouse or your son or daughter. What's, you know, if there's something that bothers you in my life, what, what would you say that would be? And I'll tell you what, that takes courage. But wouldn't you want to know? what your offensive behaviors are, what, what's pushing people away, what's offending people, what causes pain, what causes loss. Wouldn't you rather know what that is instead of just keep on doing that? And so it really begins with, you know, being honest, humble. And then the third thing I'd say is when you discover what that is, what step are you going to take 
to begin to try to overcome that. You got to do something. I mean, you know, we pray about it, and I believe in prayer, obviously. But you know, what what are you going to do now this week? What are you going to work on? And you know, mark it down because it takes a do to get something done. Oh, good point. And wouldn't you agree that we all have at least three or four blind spots? So when we approach someone and say, you know, what am I? What would you like to see me change? Maybe it's it's as simple as uh, I don't I don't see everything about me. So what are what are my blind spots? Right, and that the very nature of that word blind spot means we're blind to it. Yeah, exactly. We don't we we can't see. I can't see the back of my head, and oftentimes I cut my own hair, by the way. <laughs> oftentimes I, I miss spots way back here, and I can't see it, but everybody else can see it. Yeah. Um, sometimes my wife will say, man, you missed a whole spot back. <laughs> so that's what a blind spot is. You just, you don't see it. So you need somebody else to help you, help you see that. Yeah. Are you using uh, clippers or a Floby? What do you got? You know, I'm, you know, I don't have a lot of hair, so I've, I've gone to the, just the buzz and, you know, okay. very cheap, cheap way. I just buzz away and. <laughs> All right, Bob, let me take a little break. Talking to Bob Merritt, he's written a great book called Done With That, Escape the Struggle of Your Old Life. We'll take a short break and be right back. Welcome back to the show. I have Bob Merritt on our studio line. He's written a book uh, that we're talking about today called Done With That, Escape the Struggle of Your Old Life. And Bob, as I'm just paging through your book and going back through some of the chapters I've looked at, in chapter 9, you talk about the battle between the Spirit of Jesus and our sinful nature. Um, and you, you, you lay out this really nice little framework uh, where we can have a less destructive hold on life if we have less arguing with your spouse over petty stuff, less anger over all the wrongs people seem to inflict on you, less obsession over your body shape or bank account, less anxiety over the things you can't control. You've really done a beautiful job of condensing and putting into perspective some pretty important things. Yeah, so, you know, the Bible talks about the fact that we as Christians, uh, those of us who are in Christ, who have put our faith in Christ, the Spirit of God takes up residence inside us. It's an amazing truth, amazing reality. But the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, that same Spirit and that same power resides inside of us. But the Bible also says, Romans 6 and 8, that we have a sinful human nature that is still there. And the Bible says that there's this conflict going on inside believers between God's spirit and this sinful human nature that pulls us towards sin. And, you know, the, the question is, uh, who's going to win? And so this battle is constantly going on. And, and how do I, how do I make sure that the battle uh, over sin and death is what the Bible calls it, you know, sexual morality, lustful thoughts, anger, greed, uh, those kinds of things. That's, the, th- those are those, that's what the sinful nature produces versus the Spirit of God 
reproduces love, joy, peace, kindness, patience, self-control, relational wholeness. You know, what's going to win the day? And how do, how do I win this battle is really the question. Mm-hmm. Right? Yes, exactly. Now, Bob, when I think about some of what you were dealing with at, at your church job, and you mm-hmm. were, I think, delegating responsibility and assuming people would do their job well, um, you know, and that yet you were being criticized, if I have this correct, was, were you feeling some, uh, when you look back, a little bit of uh, opposition by the enemy? I mean, you're growing a huge church. Yeah, we underestimate it. The Bible says that there is an enemy. Uh, Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's every single day. Mm-hmm. And so this enemy wants to destroy you, destroy me, destroy every believer, every person, doesn't matter if you're a believer or not. So we, we do have an enemy. We, we, that's why Ephesians says, you know, put on the whole armor of God. Take up the shield of faith. Love that statement. Take up the shield of faith that extinguishes all, every single one of the flaming arrows that Satan wants to throw at you. So it's constant. Um, I think we're oftentimes unaware of it. Uh, These days I'm praying a prayer every single day. My wife is too. Uh, God, a prayer protection, protect us from uh, the attacks of Satan. Protect our kids. Protect our grandkids. Uh, Don't allow him to... uh, uh, you know, harm us in any way. Don't allow him to tempt us. Don't allow him to create conflict in our family or in our staff and our church. We pray this every single day because he is an enemy who still has power. And I think a lot of people underestimate it. I don't look for a demon under every bush, but I'm very much aware these days, Bill, that uh, we do. And just take a look at American culture. I mean, it's it's unraveling at the seams, but we do have we do have the answer. There, there's a power that, that has overcome the evil one. We need to tap into that power every single day. We need to ask God to lead us by his spirit, fill us with his spirit, control us by his spirit, to overcome, you know, the attacks from Satan for sure. Mm-hmm. And Bob, I'm looking uh, through part three of your book, and I'm wondering if you always write this brilliantly or if this is your A material, because I could rename the book Bob Merritt's A material because it's really, really good stuff. <laughs> and when you talk well, about I, less rebellion and more obedience, fewer possessions, more people, less selfishness, more sacrifice, you go on and on. It's so succinct. Well, so let me let me just pick up on one of those. Less obsession, more devotion is the final chapter in the book. I, uh, We all have interests in life. I, I like to golf. I like to hunt. I like to fish. I like to bike and so forth. Those are those are hobbies and interests, but sometimes those things can become an obsession. If I become obsessed with deer hunting, which I am, by the way, okay. <laughs> yeah, it, my my wife will say in November there's 12 days in November uh, when the deer are in the rut. They're you know they're they're very active. She says all you little men lose your little minds, and I I I, I do. I lose my mind. I'm obsessed. I think about wind direction, deer movement. I think about where I'm going to be hunting and so forth. For 12 days, I am, a, I am an obsessed person. <laughs> uh-huh. Now, that, that creates tension in our marriage. And if, and, and, and if I would continue that throughout the year, I'm going to lose my marriage. 
And so what I talk about is it's okay to have habits and hobbies, but when something becomes an obsession, it begins to squeeze God, God out of my life. And so that's where I talk about is there an obsession in your life that is actually squeezing God, squeezing the, the work of God's spirit out of your life and creating a, a, an emptiness, a void, a loss of power to overcome sin. So I talk about less obsession, more devotion to Jesus Christ who, you know, can set us free from, it, it's, I still hunt. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong. I still golf. But if anything takes the place of God in the center of my life, I'm going to lose. Yeah. And I think it's, I think it, maybe it was Augustine or somebody or Paul or somebody, I lose track what I learned sometimes, but it's not that you love bad things, but you love good things too much. Yeah. And, and that becomes a disordered love. And then all of a sudden you've got something that's bigger than it should be occupying a place. It shouldn't be occupying. That's right. That's right. And so, you know, anything that occupies the space in my soul that belongs to God uh, is really idolatry. That, that becomes my God. Mm-hmm. Anything that occupies, occupies the space in my life that belongs to God is idolatry. And so if that happens, I become disordered in my soul. Yeah. So, and, yeah. Bob, how did you repair from this criticism, this 225-page document about what's wrong with Bob? And, and how did you weather these storms? How did you repair? How did you get yourself back on track? And then what advice can you give the rest of us? So you keep going back to this painful. <laughs> I know. <laughs> painful mostly because I'm shocked by it. I mean, honestly. Oh, yeah. Well, I, you know, going through this, I was so uh, uh, broken uh, during this two-day lockdown. It happened down in Lanesboro where this guy lived. Uh, the, the spread, my counselor and his, his staff. And I, at the end of it, I said, Okay, I get it, Fred. I, I, I've got these issues in my life. I, I'm, 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 I get it. I said, what are my chances of overcoming these behaviors that have been so ingrained and so automatic in my life for 50-some years? What are my chances of overcoming this? Mm-hmm. He said about 40%. He said about 40% of the people who go through a, a session like this, a year-long session, uh, are able to overcome. Now he's talking about Christians and non-Christians. And I said, well, what's the difference? And he said one word. He said humility. He said, if you are humble before God, if you bring this before God every single day, if you put it on project status, confess it when you, you know, confess your sin when you fail, because we're never going to be perfect, but hopefully there's progress. Confess it, be honest about it, and, you know, day by day, it'll lose its grip on your life. And I can tell you that that's true. I'm, I'm still, I still fumble the ball. I still say things I shouldn't, but I can see progress in my life. But it really goes back to that word humility and honesty before God and confessing it to him every time it happens, asking forgiveness, going back to those you hurt, saying, will you forgive me? By the way, that gets old. I bet. When you, when you go back. <laughs> When you have to go back time and time again and say, I'm so sorry, I screwed up again, will you forgive me? That gets tiring. And you get you get tired of having to do that. Mm-hmm. But the act of doing it helps you also gain, gain victory over it. 
Well, thank you for showing uh, this side of you. You're, you're a good man. Hey, I appreciate that, Bill. And I off, I have really enjoyed uh, talking to you, and um, I appreciate the book. Well, I appreciate you and and what you're doing, and you know we're all we're in this all together. I couldn't um, agree more. Not, yep, none of us are perfect, but hopefully making progress. Yeah. So thank you, Bob Merritt's been my guest. His book is called "Done with That: Escape the Struggle of Your Old Life." Thanks again to Pastor Bob Merritt for making it such a great second hour. Appreciate his book, and thank you for uh, being so uh, so wise. That wraps up our show. Thanks for listening today. You know I love you, and you know I can't wait for our next time together. Have a great night, everyone. And when you lay your head on that pillow, just know that God's working on his great plan in your life. See you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.